Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning online via live stream and to be with you, uh, the other nine of you that are in the building here. It's lovely to see your faces as well in person. So we're finishing the first chapter in the book of James this morning for our Invitation to Flourishing series. Because as Pastor Ed has mentioned in previous weeks, chapter one functions, as, functions in this letter as a sort of table of contents for the rest of the letter. So we really want to encourage you in this season, again, to read through the book of James. Read through the whole thing. It's only five chapters. Uh, you know, for those of you who are going to be in the women's Bible study, we'll be looking at James for the next 11 weeks, so, you know, you're off the hook. But for the rest of you, read it, because it really is a unique book in our New Testament. I remember a friend ago, a friend years ago, telling me that he was actually memorizing the book of James, and I remember thinking, you know, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be my first choice. Just because, you know, when you think of the New Testament, you think of Paul, you think of the Gospels, you think of these long chapters on Christ and who he is and what he's done for us, and, and James just kind of feels a little bit all over the place. He's, he's like a first-time preacher who's just got so much to say and so little space to do it in. It's just this barrage of imperatives. But as one scholar put it, James is good, brisk teaching. There are so many good nuggets in the book of James. It's just, he's so beautifully pragmatic. And many of his major themes that are found in the rest of the book are also actually in the passage for this morning. So we're going to look at James chapter 1. Again, if you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn to James chapter 1. And we're looking at verses 19 through 27. So again, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. James writes this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord. So before we explore these passages this morning, and there's a lot in this, I just want to draw your attention to the verse that immediately precedes this section, because it gives a bit of a foundation for why James is so focused on being doers and on how we behave. So verse 18 says this, He chose to give us birth, through the word of truth, so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. In other words, we are born anew into a new way of living, existing in Christ, a new existence in Christ. So how then do we not just claim the reality of this new birth, but also bear the fruit of it? of this new birth, of of having received blessing in order to give blessing and be a blessing, in order to then flourish. That's what James is after. How do we do both? Receive and give, hear and do. 
So we're actually going to start this morning at verse 22 and then come back to these earlier verses because I'm, I'm, we're trying to grasp what he's doing here and the order is a little bit strange. So we're going to start at verse 22 um, because his focus here is this, that these Christians have heard the gospel message, okay? They've heard the truth. They've, they've heard the word, but they're not doing anything about it. They're not living as if they've been born into new life, into a new way of being. Why is that a problem? Well, you don't just believe things in principle, do you? You don't just believe in theory that you shouldn't speed on the highway or that you shouldn't leave a grocery store without paying for your food. You don't just tell someone you love them, but then not do anything to show that. You act out your beliefs. You act out what you believe. And James wants to say to them, do something with your so-called faith. This is actually why Martin Luther, way back in the day, actually kind of despised the letter of James. He didn't think that it should be in our New Testament canon because it was so focused on doing and so focused on, on being and do, or, or so much on, on doing things rather than on Christ and on grace. And James can have a bit of a reputation for that for sure. But if you know your Gospels and you read James then, his letter is infiltrated with the teachings of Jesus, sometimes almost verbatim. He is steeped in the teachings of Christ. And his point here is that if you have received this word from our Lord, what good is your faith if it doesn't actually do something? If it hasn't led to a kind of transformation? Which is why he says in verse 22, and we'll start here, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Why? Because verse 23, anyone who just listens to the word, to Christ's teachings, but doesn't do what it says, doesn't do what he said, is, is like someone who looks at their face in a mirror, but then walks away and completely forgets what they looked like. Now, this mirror image is really important. So mirrors in the ancient world weren't as common as we have them today. They, and they didn't necessarily show a perfect image all the time. So sometimes it was more like, you know, taking a spoon and looking at your, yourself in the, in, in the spoon. It's a little bit distorted and your face is a bit like oblong. It's, it's a bit distorted and you, you need to really pause and carefully consider what you're seeing. And that's because usually when you looked in a mirror, there was something wrong. You had a little bit of dirt on your face or some dust or whatever. And the mirror was there to lead you to action, to do something about it. But in this situation, this person just leaves and doesn't deal with the problem. They're, they're not fixing the flaw. For these listeners, this kind of behavior in this example would have been foolish. But that's James' point. It is insane he thinks, for anyone to hear the liberating word of Jesus Christ, the, verse 25, the perfect law that gives freedom, which could be a whole sermon in itself, to, to hear it and then just ignore it or, or forget what they've even heard and experience zero transformation. It, it, it'd be like when the check engine light comes on in my car, but I just, which has actually happened a lot in the last six months for Danny and I, but, and Liz knows this, <laughs> we've gone to Tim a number of times, but it's like when the check engine light comes on in your car and I just ignore it. No, don't do anything about it. You know, th there's an obvious call to action, but I just can't be bothered. It's fine. A man gazes into the mirror and thinks, oh yes, that's interesting, and then just walks away. It's like, 
how we approach our own discipleship sometimes. Or shoot, how we, how we come to church even sometimes. And that's not a judgment. I'm just, I'm just stating a reality. This is often how we live. We got the whole checklist, right? Check. Or church, check. Bible reading, check. Prayers before meals, check. I've looked in the mirror and it all seems fine and dandy. No problems. But as Will Barclay put it, it is still possible to identify church attendance and Bible reading with Christianity. And to believe that the person who faithfully attends church and who diligently studies their Bible is a good Christian. And now if you hear that and instinctively do a double take and go, wait, what? This is our problem. Because I did that too. These are absolutely Christian values. Of course they are. Unless, says James, they don't lead to a transformed life and to transformed priorities. Because as he says in verse 26, and here he gets more specific, okay, we're honing in. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not, for example, keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves. And their religion is what? Subpar, lacking in vigor, not enough of a priority? No. Worthless. Worthless? In other words, idle, empty, fruitless, useless, powerless, lifeless, might as well be non-existent. Gosh, tell us how you really feel, James. Whew. Seriously. You want to talk about a good buck-kicking for Christian discipleship? Read this book. I'm imagining all the women that signed up for the Bible study course are second-guessing themselves. But notice this. Here's the thing. From the very beginning, James is 100% pastoral in how he speaks here. What we have here is really just some tough love from Pastor James. Because look at verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. He's pleading with them, calling them my dear brothers and sisters, which is it's a term of endearment. It can actually mean beloved or, or esteemed brothers and sisters. Write this down. Don't just hear it and do nothing with it. This is a big deal, what I'm about to tell you, so, so take note of it. Make a mental note to yourself. Write a little sticky note and put it on your bathroom mirror. Text message yourself. And here's where he hones in. Everyone, he says, not just a few of you, not just the ones who are needing some discipline and discipleship, not just the baby Christians who don't know their Joseph from their Moses. Everyone, everyone, he says, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Again, in other words, listen to the word and do what it says, particularly in the area of anger. And because it's a theme that he picks up later on in the book, we're going to spend some time on this this morning. Because how can this one issue make our religion or faith worthless and keep us from doing the word and bearing the fruit of this new life in Christ? How can this one little thing do that? Well, think about it. How often does our inappropriate or malicious, or envious, or dramatic, or impulsive, or hurtful behavior come out of a place of anger? When was the last time you felt just a twinge of anger and then acted on it? It's probably more recent than you think. 
anger for James does not produce God's character. The fruits of the Spirit, his justice, his compassion, anger does not produce any of those things. It does not produce the righteousness of God and allow you to be a doer of the word. It actually hinders you from being a doer of the word. And I'll admit it, I had to sit with this one for a while because certainly there's a space for a kind of righteous anger, isn't there, when it it comes to to seeing injustice and and calling out bullying and, and inappropriate behavior. And yes, in Ephesians 4 verse 26, Paul does seem to give some space for, for a kind of anger that, that simply doesn't lead us to sin. So, so there's spaces when it's appropriate, but it must be kept in its place. You know, I subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs emails, and every week I get an update on persecution of Christians that's happening all over the world. And when I read about a pastor in Nigeria getting ambushed and getting shot, yeah, I'm angry. When I hear about my fellow brothers and sisters in a village in Nigeria getting ambushed by militants and people getting killed, yeah, I'm angry. And yet, even then, I'm told to pray for the persecutors. I've been taught by Jesus to pray for the people, for the men who are killing my Christian brothers and sisters. How much more then should we pray for those who anger us in far less destructive ways? It's really hard. As somebody once recently put it, it's really hard to be angry at someone you're praying for. Because more often than not, our anger is actually a part of this moral filth and evil that James says to just get rid of. The actual phrasing there is, is take it off, unclothe yourself, strip yourself of it, like, like a dirty sweater that's been eaten up by moths and is molding in various places. Just like take it off, take it off of me. That's our approach. That's meant to be our approach to anger. We don't want it. It does not produce or work out the righteousness that God desires, that we who have been born anew and, and have heard Christ's teachings should be demonstrating. Hebrews 2 verse 1 says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. When we instinctively feel anger and then act upon that anger, we are, in our behavior, drifting away. When I get an email or a text that bothers me and I impulsively fly back at them, not thinking about what I'm saying, I'm drifting. It's not thoughtful, it's not helpful, it's not godly. It's actually less human. I'm using a space that allows only for one-way communication, that doesn't really encourage or, or actually loses voice, tone, intonation, emotion, everything. I actually think it's why the younger generations, including my own generation, are always using exclamation marks and emojis in every text message they send because they're trying to add some emotion into it. They don't want to be misunderstood. When I first met Danny, every text message he sent me actually had at least two exclamation marks behind. And I had to tell him eventually to just calm it down because I actually felt like he was shouting at me. But, but you all know what I'm talking about, right? We've all made regretful choices in the areas of, of email and texting and messaging. And we've all been on the receiving end of it as well. 
We're passive aggressive until we get in front of a screen and, and, and now, oh, now I have control. Now I can say whatever I want without having to have a proper conversation. I can just press send and it's gone. Ah, I feel so much better. But do we really? Because my goodness, the impact that our words can have. I had a friend call me up just this past week, actually, interestingly, asking for advice. He had been at work and saw one of his fellow uh, employees doing something in haste that really ticked him off because it was messing up the, the equipment and not taking care of it. He ended up snapping at this person and it got awkward and a few days later he was wondering now what to do about the situation. So I said to him, first of all, don't make assumptions. Don't assume that this person just did it on purpose or that they didn't care or give a darn. Talk to them. Go and talk to them and first of all, apologize for your own behavior and your own temperament. Apologize that you snapped at them. Allow vulnerability to be the first thing that enters a conversation and acknowledge your own temperament before you force it out of someone else. Then, and only then, share with them your concerns and the impact of their behavior. But, but of course, do it in a spirit of gentleness. Speak with the tone and the temperament of Christ. Simply acknowledge that, for example, you were surprised by the situation. You, you didn't understand why it happened the way it did. And, and you'll be surprised by how much better that kind of a conversation goes than if you had just gone and said, hey, I'm upset with you. You're starting with anger and you'll likely only invite it back. Seems a little bit simple or, or, or whatever, so why bother, you ask? Well, because you care more about the relationship than about being right. You're having a conversation because you care about fostering a healthy relationship and allowing for spiritual growth for both you and them. Clothe your temperament with Christ and be slow to anger because anger does not produce Christ-likeness. Think about it. Think of all the times you've gotten angry. What kind of person do you become? And is that the kind of person that God desires you to be? Does that person image Christ? Does that person, or does that, yeah, does that person just make you, you feel so full of the Holy Spirit and inspire you to be a doer of the word? Probably not. And you know, the whole, the whole sticks and stones, you know, can't break my whatever ditty is a bunch of baloney. <laughs> Words hurt. Angry, gossip, and arguing without understanding kills relationships, not to mention a community. You know, J.I. Packer actually referred to it as a form of murder. That's why the book of Proverbs is just packed with proverbials about how we use our tongues. 10 verse 19, sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. 13 verse 3, those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. 29 20, do you see someone who speaks in haste? There is more hope for a fool than for them. It's no secret that we do not heed by these words in our modern society. Watching political elections is enough to prove this. Nobody listens to one another anymore. No one's willing to shut off their minds or, or their own agendas to hear another person's point of view. We live in an angry world. 
How often do you find yourself fabricating a response to someone before they've even finished speaking? If you're only thinking about what you're going to say next, you're already speaking too quickly. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to become angry. The order there is spot on. Because really, if you've accomplished the first two, the third isn't really much of a problem. Lead with your ears, says Peterson in the message translation. Lead with your ears, follow up with your tongue, and let anger straggle along in the rear. Because when we don't do this, when we're not operating in Christ-like, spirit-filled, God-honoring ways, usually actually the reverse happens. We get angry at somebody and we're quick to speak and slow to listen. Human depravity is often the backwards form of what's good and true and how God ordained it to be. We are created to be like God, in God-likeness, in Christ-likeness, who wants us to mirror him. That's why later in James chapter 3, he writes that we cannot actually praise God and then curse others from the same mouth. Others who have been made in the likeness of God. Look at what we're doing. We're we're, we're praising God. We're saying we're praising God, but we're not honoring our fellow creatures that he has made. The tongue, James writes, corrupts the whole body. Consider, he says in chapter 3, verse 5, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Consider the forest fires that we get here in BC or that devastated California and Australia this past year. With your tongue... You have the capacity, we all have the capacity to do great damage. That's why we can often remember sometimes verbatim the angry or the hurtful, hurtful words that people spoke to us, you know, years ago. But years later, they're still reverberating in our own minds. Get rid of all that moral filth, says James. That antagonism, the divisiveness, the complete lack of peace, the aggressiveness, the need to be right, that behavior which is so prevalent in this world, don't get sucked into that. We cannot turn vengeance or personal grievance into a virtue when we are called always to be peacemakers. And you know, we we don't need to do this on our own either or in our own strength. I know this is difficult for a lot of us. But we don't need to do this by ourselves. Danny actually has an uncle in Angola who used to be famous in the family for his temper. He was a force to be reckoned with growing up. Both he and his wife will attest to this. But he was invited to go to a prayer gathering back when the Toronto Revival meetings were going on in the 90s. And naturally, he was skeptical about it. But all he remembers is going. And during the prayer he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit that just completely knocked him off his feet. And since that day, he was a changed man. From fits of anger to gentleness and compassion. I mean, don't get me wrong, apparently he can still get pretty feisty sometimes, especially as a doctor in the ER. But Danny will say that there was definitely a significant shift. You don't hear these stories very often, 
but it's a testament to how greatly the Holy Spirit desires to help us to be doers of the word. James calls us to accept the seed that was planted in us, which is of an entirely different posture than what the world presents to us and social media presents to us as normal. That of a savior, gentle and humble, unaggressive, who never felt a need to defend or justify himself, but put all of his confidence in the Father's will. And when that happens, then as James puts it in verse 27, acceptable religion, the working out of your faith, in other words, the practices of your faith, doesn't look like anger against one another. Rather, it looks like this, mercy for the oppressed and the forgotten, and strength against the evils of the world. Is this what our faith looks like? Because God's heart, lest we forget, as demonstrated in Scripture, is to care for the fatherless and the forgotten and to make us holy. Take care of the widows and the orphans in your society. Take care of the ones who need the most help. Take care of the people who aren't being taken care of by anyone else. In other words, consider bringing orphans into your own homes. How many of us actually consider doing that? Consider visiting with those who are in prison and grew up neglected. Consider even in just small ways how you can reach out to people on the outside who don't have a home, who don't have food, who don't have a car, and people to care for them. New Testament scholar Miriam Kamel writes this, James, in essence, is asking us, did you in fact realize that the meeting of needs is not peripheral or optional, but central and obligatory to your faith? Again, it's, it's inhabiting this posture, right? This attitude, this working out of our faith. James is saying, this is what it looks like. This is what bearing the fruit of your new life in Christ looks like. And now I know this, this sudden mention of social action can, can feel a bit strange for us or a bit jarring. Like, why does he just tag it on to the end here? But you know, that's because we are so accustomed to seeing these things as different entities, For James to speak about anger and then doing the word and then something about mirrors and then compassion and justice, our instinctive reaction is to feel like he's gone nuts and, you know, because we separate these out. They're different things. But in James's mind, it's all connected. We don't separate off our temperament from our piety, our piety from our compassion efforts, our compassion efforts from scripture reading. It's all linked together. And just as we can't be hearers and not doers, so too we can't be doers and not hearers. Because then our doing has no compass and no direction. No, the the more we look intently at the perfect law of Christ, the more our hearts begin to beat with his. And we long for ongoing transformation for both ourselves and for the world. We don't get angry anymore at our fellow Christians, but at the evil and the injustice that's still present around us. We long for ourselves to be made holy, and we long for the presence of God and the glory of God to fill this world. Because we've clothed ourselves in Christ, humbly accepting the word that was planted in us, and then as Luke 18:28 puts it or Luke 11:28 says, "Blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it." Keep it. Steward it, shepherd it, nurture it. Let the seed planted in you produce something because Jesus wasn't just a good moral teacher. 
His teachings aren't just helpful in some arbitrary ways. They're good. They're perfect. That's what morality is. This is what morality is, the good and true way to live. In other words, this isn't just good advice. This is how to truly live. This is how you live a blessed life. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they who? Blessed are they who? This is the blessed life. This is how we live a blessed life. We can live the blessed life. Because we know that it leads to him. Who is our great treasure and the only one who truly and completely desires to see us flourish. To see us made holy. To see us embodying his likeness, looking in the mirror, remembering his word, being transformed into his image while taking on his yoke. Living under as Eugene Peterson put it, the unforced rhythms of grace, the perfect law, living into the way of Jesus, following him, walking in his steps, living as he did, concerning ourselves with his concerns, and then being led down the path of flourishing. That's the invitation that James is trying to remind us of. It's the invitation of Christ. May we humbly accept it and be both hearers and doers for his sake. Amen. Let me pray. Living God, we pray, Lord, now that your word would sink deeply into our hearts. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. May we hear your word. May it transform us. And may we bear the fruit of a new life in you. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.